Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. I hope you're enjoying the summer. That's the last time we'll see summer for about nine months or any sun. Uh, but I think we've been basking in it uh, after the year and a half we've had. This is such an important show today. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the coming cut, which is what it is. That's important we talk about that, to universal credit, which is the way the Tories redig the welfare state. We'll have a bit of conversation about that as well. And at the same time, of course, as you'll be aware, the Tories are hiking national insurance, which will disproportionately affect many low-paid workers, including care workers for that matter, to pay for the social care crisis without even resolving it, which we'll mention a bit as well. But after a pandemic, which has had terrible, not just health consequences, but economic and social consequences, the Conservatives are going to slash the real terms income of low-paid workers across the country in a during the biggest crisis we've had since World War II. What are the consequences of that? Well, what we're going to do today is we've got a brilliant expert who you'll, many of you will be familiar with, Professor Jonathan Portes. We've had him on before. Um, and we'll talk about what this actually means, the economics of it, the impact this will have, how regressive it all is. But often this conversation about the welfare state is often about those people who are affected without including them in the conversation. Now, we want to rectify that. So we'll be talking to a brilliant activist from Disabled People Against the Cuts. And it is very important that we know that disabled people have been obviously hammered in the aftermath of a financial crash they had absolutely nothing to do with. And Disabled People Against the Cuts have been at the absolute forefront of much of the activism organising disabled people to have a voice and to fight back against this cut, these cuts. And we're also joined by someone who will suffer the consequences of the cut in universal credit and what that will mean for her and for people like her across the country. And as I've said, that's so important that the megaphone is actually passed on rather than people like myself, however well-meaning we might be, uh, those journalists who want to challenge the onslaught against the British welfare state, uh, that that megaphone is passed on to those who actually live those experiences. And we will talk later as well to the brilliant chair of Young Labour, Jess Barnard. You may have heard something of i mean even i mean the labor party civil war of the last few years nothing ceases to i thought nothing would cease to amaze me uh the chair of young labor being um facing disciplinary action for calling out transphobia on twitter there was a prompt not a prompt well promptish u-turn after social media outrage what on earth does this tell us about the current state of the labor party the broader offensive of course against trans people which in this country has often descended into new lows, um, but also what's going on in the Labour Party conferences coming up. Before I bring in our first amazing guest, normal housekeeping, if you're watching this live, do click on the YouTube link. So if you're watching this on Facebook, if you click on the YouTube link, it just helps the show. Press like, subscribe. Uh, for those supporting us on Patreon to keep this all on the road, 
We've got lots of documentaries coming up, including finally, we're going to get this documentary done on who really owns Britain. We're looking at wealth and power in Britain. Uh, it's going to be a really important documentary, uh, as well as documentaries from Labour Party conference. I'm dreading it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I'm absolutely dreading it. I have never dreaded Labour Party conference as much as I have. Uh, before it's going to be an interesting experience but i'm also going to conservative party conference as well in my hometown manchester so there's something out of it i could probably drink my sorrows away in canal street where i used to be a barman uh but we will be there at conservative party conference uh and we will do a documentary about what's going on in our party of government it's it's gonna be the things i what i, I don't know what i've done in a past life to deserve that particular um sojourn but there we have it. Um, and uh, to support the show as well, you super chat. Uh, oh, sorry, that's Patreon. So if you support us on Patreon forward slash Owen Jones 84, three cut a month or whatever, that keeps the show on the road. It allows us to make these documentaries. It allows us to make the podcast. Uh, many of you will be listening to this on the podcast. So do like and uh, subscribe to the podcast as well. Uh, or you can support the show with super chat where you can support the show and put questions on YouTube to our guests. Right, that's enough for me. I'm bored of my voice. So we're going to bring in our first fantastic guest, Professor Jonathan Portes, whose work on a whole range of issues, I have to say, is exemplary, whether it be, for example, on immigration. He's really been at the forefront of pushing back against the tawdry lies pushed by, pushed by the anti-migrant uh, lobby uh, in this country, but also on issues of social uh, security, for example. Um, so, Jonathan, it's really good to see you again. How are you doing? Hi, good to be back. Great, great to see you again. So, before, I, I want to get your reaction to something. We've got a clip of a Conservative minister who has been questioned uh, on Sky News about the cut to universal credit. So let's just have a little look at what he says. The thing we don't need to specul about, uh, speculate about is the uh, 20, uh, £20 uplift uh, in universal credit. We know that that is going to be done away with quite soon. That makes the difference with some families between putting food in their kids' bellies and not. How, how can we possibly justify that? Well, I think that when it was introduced, it was introduced as a temporary measure to uh, alleviate the challenge that families' finances would feel during COVID and set against a uh, growing jobs market where there is now opportunities for employment for very many people. There is an opportunity to say that that temporary measure is no longer required. Now, clearly, I understand that for many colleagues and for many uh, in society, that is challenging because people have adjusted to having that money. But it was introduced as a temporary measure. The economy has bounced back quickly. And so I think it is legitimate to look at withdrawing that temporary measure now that there is the opportunity for people to find employment again and to make the money for themselves. And those who say my kids will go hungry as a result, what would you say in response to them? I would say that that is very, very sad to hear. Lovely stuff. Um, so, Jonathan, let's just start with that. So, the let's just talk, explain maybe someone maybe properly understand how university credit works, what it is. It was obviously introduced under this uh, government over the last few years. Ian Duncan Smith was the architect. So, explain that and what this uplift. What, put it into context. Um, I mean, it's interesting. The minister there saying, "Well, there's a pandemic on. Uh, the, the pandemic is no longer on." Uh, but equally, we can't have a public inquiry into the pandemic because the pandemic's still on. So this doesn't quite make sense. But just just your take on that. Explain a bit about universal credit and and what this means. Um, well, I mean, I think in, in a sense, there is a very important point that comes out of this, which is that you can't look at what's happening with universal credit, both the um, 
the temporary uplift and the cut that's coming in now without looking at the context of the last 10 years um, and uh, the very, very large cuts to welfare benefits that have taken, that took place before the pandemic. It's just as, you know, um, some of you may have seen Sajid Javid um, on television this morning again saying, well, waiting lists for the NHS have gone up because of the pandemic. Well, that's absolutely true, of course, but it ignores the fact that waiting lists in the NHS have been going up for most of the last decade because of um, restrictions on funding to the NHS that were introduced well before the pandemic and obviously had nothing to do with the pandemic. And exactly the same is true with the welfare system. The reason that the uplift was necessary was because of the very large cuts that have been brought in um, mostly over the last six or seven years. Um, so, as you said, Owen, universal, and I think talking about universal credit as the cause, um, in some sense, slightly misses the point. Um, universal credit was a mess in, a lots of, in lots of ways, the way it was introduced, the IT system and so on, because of Ian Duncan Smith's um, inability to listen to advice. But the basic principle of universal credit um, was simply that of consolidating a bunch of existing benefits, most importantly tax credit, into one benefit. Um, and that in itself um, was not a cut, it was a sensible um, you know, or at least a certainly perfectly defensible rationalization of the system. Um, and indeed, in the original conception of universal credit, it would actually have led to some increases for some people in the amounts they got. Overall, it would have been good um, for low-income families rather than bad. Um, so it's not the universal credit that's the problem. It's the simply the amount of money that's going into the system and the cuts that were made particularly um, over the last five years between about 2015 and about 2020, just before the pandemic. Two really, really big cuts being the most important there. Um, one was the benefit freeze, where benefits were simply uh, um, frozen in cash terms. So they eroded very significantly over that period. Um, and the second, um, and arguably, I think the, perhaps the worst and the nastiest policy um, that, uh, that this government and previous ones have introduced um, the, uh, uh, the, the two-child limit for uh, families um, in receipt of um, tax credits and universal credit, meaning that um, people, that, that um, mothers or families who had um, a third child got no extra support at all. And of course, that has exactly as was predicted, exactly as intended to do, has hit precisely the poorest and the most vulnerable families. So that's the, it's important to see that as the backdrop to the temporary uplift that was introduced when the pandemic hit. And try to make this about, oh, it was just a temporary bit of pandemic-related support. We, you know, it was just there for the period of the pandemic. And then getting into an argument about exactly when the pandemic finishes is quite the wrong way to look at it. It's important to look at this as part of a much longer, much broader attempt to uh, um, erode uh, the, uh, the value of, of benefits overall for working families, for, for low-income families working and not working, I should say. Because, of course, so, it applies to low-income families, whether, whether or not they're in work. So this cut, I mean, it's worth uh, £6 billion of funding a year, but it's 20 quid a week. 
And uh, the Financial Times reports a senior well-placed Whitefall official saying the government's own analysis shows, I note this is a quote, the internal modelling of ending the universal credit uplift is catastrophic. Homelessness and poverty are likely to rise and food banks usage will soar. It could be the real disaster of the summer. And actually, interestingly, Rishi Sunak, whose popularity misplaced, unfortunately, but is is one of the most popular government ministers, is one of those most ardently pushing uh, to scrap the uplift. But even the likes of Ian Duncan-Smith have come out to demand it's uplifting. I think when you're to the right of Ian Duncan-Smith on the welfare state, it's a pretty gruesome place to be. But just in terms of the impact, I mean, what are we talking about? Because 20 quid, what are we talking about in the kind of, in terms of the incomes of those workers and not just workers, but what, you know, what sorts of people are we talking about and how difficult an impact is that going to make? Well, I think one important thing is, is to make, is, is just to realise just what a huge proportion of the population this hits. We are talking about currently about five to six million people on universal credit. So it's probably about um, one in four um, uh, working age families. So this is a huge number of people. It's a huge proportion of the population. Um, and of course, it's a very big hit indeed. It's a thousand, uh, you know, 20 quid a week is a thousand quid a year um, for um, a lot of people in terms of their um net disposable income after housing costs, the sort of amount of discretionary income they're having, that, that could easily be um, up to one pound in 10 or even more. So it's absolutely conceivable that this is the very much the, the difference between just about managing, just getting by um, and having your head below water. Um, so that I think is the, the first important. To put it in historical perspective, um, I think uh, um, the, the one really striking uh, um, statistic which came out last week was that this is possibly the largest cut to welfare benefits um, in essentially in, in, since World War II. Um, so the largest cut since the establishment of the, uh, of the modern welfare state. Um, according to the, uh, the the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, and that sounds entirely plausible. Um, it is it is really a, a huge number. And in terms of of what it, government officials may or may not have been saying about it, um, you know, there, there's nothing. There's no nobody's hiding anything about this. There's no secrecy about it. The sorts of models that people in the Department of Work and Pensions, where as you know, I used to be the chief economist, use to examine the impact of cuts like this are exactly the same as the sort of models the Resolution Foundation or the Institute of Fiscal Studies or that I use with my colleague Howard Reed when we've been doing modeling of the impact of, of, of these changes. Um, and they all give the same results because, you know, actually it's not really rocket science to work out what happens when you impose a, a, a cut of a very large cut on a very large number of, uh, of, of, of families. This is a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, you know, uh, uh, as you said before, I wouldn't presume to to talk about what exactly it means to individuals. People who are affected are in a much better place than I am. But looking at it as I do, because it's my job from this sort of helicopter perspective of spreadsheets and models and hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, the, the magnitude of this is is is, is absolutely massive. Um, 
Simon Wakeley here says, I've got a disability, which means it's almost impossible to find work due to accessibility issues. I'm on universal credit. I've just turned 25. However, when the payment goes back, I'll be £20 worse off. I mean, be interested just into it because obviously this does affect huge numbers of different sorts of people in this country. I do think it's interesting that actually the public mood has shifted on the welfare state because at the beginning of the years of austerity, um, one of the ways austerity was in a sense popularized or got huge amounts of acquiescence was the mantra was huge amounts of public money is being wasted and it's being wasted on the feckless, on the lazy, on the so-called scroungers. And I think that debate has shifted, hasn't it? Um, but in terms of, you know, most people in poverty, aren't they? I mean, working households for a start. And that, I think, as the benefit cuts have spread uh, and the reality has bitten, uh, that that has had an impact on the public consciousness, hasn't it? But I'm just interested in terms of the reality of low-paid work and the role of the welfare state in supporting people. So I think you're, you're certainly right that, that the way that a lot of the cuts um, to benefits um, and particularly some of the nastier cuts such as the benefit cap um, which affects essentially people with large families living in high cost areas um, and the uh, the two child limit was legitimized was very much by this sort of uh, drip feeding of stories to the to the mail and so on about uh, benefits scroungers or families with 10 kids living on um, benefits and, 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 and all the rest of that. And I think um, people have realized over time uh, that uh, um, that they were taken for a ride on that. And actually, of course, the vast majority of people who are dependent on um, uh, benefits, tax credits, universal credit um, are, are ordinary people, um, whether they're in work or not. Um, or moving in and out of work, or struggling with disabilities, or uh, uh, um, as Simon, or whatever, um, that these are just ordinary people trying to get by, and it's those, it's people like, those are peop the people who are losing out from a cut which hits 6 million people. Um, and I think um, even, uh, even this government would have a hard time to try and justify cutting 6 million uh, benefits to 6 million people um, on the... Uh, um, uh, um, you know, on the, the, the grounds that, that somehow they were all scroungers. Um, but I think there's a couple of, of sort of further points that it's worth making, which was in addition to that really sort of nasty rhetoric, there was also a, um, a slightly more respectable version of it that you got from people, you know, openly from people like Ian Duncan Smith or, or say, um, Fraser Nelson in the uh, um, Spectator or Telegraph um, which is that, you know, money didn't, money doesn't really matter that being, you know, it's, that there's much more to poverty than, than simply how much money you have. And it was really, the, we should really be tacking the underlying causes of poverty rather than giving people uh, um, cash benefits. Um, Fraser Nelson complained to you that, that, you know, Gordon Brown tried to solve poverty by moving numbers around on a spreadsheet. Um, by which he meant, of course, that Gordon Brown put up tax credits and gave actual real people, you know, millions of real people, more money in their pockets. Um, and I think, I hope that what we are getting a bit from, uh, from, from this current discussion is that, yeah, actually, poverty really is about money. And yes, of course, that doesn't mean you don't worry about the underlying causes, low pay, um, 
uh, you know, the support we provide to people with disabilities, um, education. Of course, all those things matter tremendously. But at the end of the day, poverty really is um, about whether or not you can afford to have a decent standard of living for yourself and your family. And tax credits and then universal credits are there in order to ensure that's the case. And when you cut them, it isn't just a, you know, it may look um, like numbers on a spreadsheet in the treasury. It may look like numbers on a spreadsheet to me when I do my modeling. But the reality of is it is it that giving people um, tax credits took people out of poverty um, and cutting them will push people back into poverty. And that's, you know, it is as simple as that. Just uh, one other thing before I just ask you finally about about um, social care and national insurance. Um, often rhetoric from progressives from the left on issues of the welfare state often it's quite a defensive posture. It's often about opposing the latest Tory cut, uh, the latest Tory uh, assault, I suppose, on the welfare state. In, in quite, a, you know, stop the cuts, basically, but without having a kind of reimagining of how there could be a different sort of welfare state, which is fit for the realities of a country often, obviously, defined by insecure work. Um, so what are your thoughts? Do you have any kind of general thoughts about the sort of kind of proactive demands people should be making about the welfare state rather than these purely, which are important, obviously, in, in the current situation where huge numbers of people face being driven into poverty, children amongst them. But what kind of other things do you think demands people should be making? Well, in some ways, you know, we the, the some of what's happened during the pandemic has pointed the way forward. The fact that you, you know, the furlough scheme was, which was not perfect by any means, but was frankly pretty good in the circumstances and the, uh, you know, in, in, in the time it was invented. The fact that you can have a uh, um, a system like the furlough scheme, which provides. Um, a much more generous layer le level of support for uh, um, for uh, jobs than, than than the normal system does. That you can introduce that. Um, that you can do that without the whole sort of either the apparatus of the state falling over um, or um, the sort of pernicious effects that if anybody had sort of ta had talked about the furlough scheme before we actually did it, um, it would have been shot down from all sides. And probably, to be frank, even people like me would have criticized would have said that there would have been some. Uh, uh, some major disadvantages. In fact, it showed we, we can do it. And while I'm certainly not suggesting that we have a scheme like that all the time, the idea that you can have some form of earnings related support that is designed to produce a greater degree of job security for people, um, you know, is hopefully out there. And we'll think about that as we come to think about how to redesign the welfare state. But I think, yeah, yeah as you say, it's important to think about what, um, you know, uh, uh, what does a new form of risk sharing between individuals, employers, and the state look like? That's what we're struggling with on social care. It's what we're struggling with on on, on employment. Um, I don't have the answers there, um, but I think there probably is a bit more space than there was a few years ago, uh, you know, both politically and intellectually, to talk about that properly. So just finally, on social care, we've just obviously seen this hike in national insurance contributions. Can you th tell us just how, I suppose, regressive that is? Uh, well, what you go on. I did get into some arguments with, with some people on Twitter on this because it, it's not actually regressive. Hiking national insurance contributions in itself is not a regressive uh, uh, tax. Taxes on income generally aren't regressive. Um, who will pay most? Um, from this hike on national insurance, 
um, people like me, um, people um, earning very good salaries, um, especially those people like me in, in dual earner couples where, where both, couple, uh, both parties are earning a relatively good salary. We will pay the most. Now, that means we will be hit harder than, than super rich people, especially super rich people who don't get all of their money from, uh, from, from wages. But that doesn't change the, the fact that actually um, national insurance contributions are about, uh, across almost all of the income distribution. Remember that you know I'm not rich, or at least I don't think of myself as rich, but I'm in the top 1% or certainly close to it in income terms. Um, so um, yes, the super rich get off lightly, but the super rich get off lightly by pretty much any tax in the, in the current structure. Overall, national insurance are a slightly progressive way of funding public services. They're not as progressive as income tax, but they're more progressive than VAT. They're a lot more progressive than council tax, which is the way we've been funding extra um, payments on social care for the last few years. So just as national insurance contributions were not a bad way to fund an increase in NHS spending when Gordon Brown did it. Maybe not the perfect way, but not a bad way. They're not necessarily a bad way of funding increases in NHS spending or social care spending now. The problem is the really regressive thing about this plan is not the, in my view, the tax side. It could be better, but it's not the end of the world. It's the spending side. Where's the money going? The money is going on preserving people's inheritances. Um, and that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a sort of insurance function that the state provides and, and, and that, you know, there, there are good arguments for that for all sorts of reasons. But the idea that that is the priority when the real problem with social care system is not the fund is not, you know, whether or not people get to keep their houses when, or get to keep their parents' houses when their parents die. The real problem with social care spending is that we're not spending enough money. We're not paying, we don't have enough staff we're not paying them enough we're not training them enough and the quality of provision in many respects is is is, is pretty terrible um the if if the all the money had been going there then actually i wouldn't have thought this was an uh, overall an objectionable policy it's not so much how the money's being raised it's how it's being spent or how it's not being spent jonathan really appreciate it as ever uh, thanks so much for going into detail really flashing out uh, on on the issue, obviously, of this horrendous cut to universal credit. Um, and your expertise is always hugely appreciated. Do follow Jonathan Portes on Twitter. Do look him up because always has expert analysis on what is going on uh, in in politics and on issues, as, as I say, not least in social security, but also immigration, where he's been an absolutely um, crucial voice. Much of my work quotes Jonathan Portes, as he knows. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And see you Thank soon. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Uh, so if you're watching live, as I say, do click through to the YouTube link. And if you're listening to the podcast, hello, do subscribe. Right. We're going to bring in two other brilliant voices. And as I've said, it's so important that the megaphone is passed to those who are actually affected by what we're seeing, obviously, in the coming months and what we've seen over the last few years. So I'm really honoured to bring in uh, Nella, who is a universal credit uh, claimant. Hello. How you doing? Hello. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to see. You. I love the background. Lovely. It's a bit you. festive. I actually feeling a bit Christmas. I had, well, I had to. I had to make it a bit homely because it is a hostel after all. Of course, which I'll come on to. I'll. I'll. I'll let you explain that. I'll also bring in uh, with you Andy Green, who's from Disabled People Against the Cuts. Uh, hello, 
to explain though, Andy is not. So Andy's going to be the mysterious man. I like this. Normally, we obviously have people on video. For those listening to the podcast, we can't see Andy, but it gives him a kind of element of mysteriousness, which I think is appreciated. So, hello, Andy. How you doing? Thank you for talking me up. On I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, let let people know what's going on. Fantastic. And just, we'll talk a bit as well about disabled people against the cuts. You've done absolutely critical work and do need the support of everybody. Nella, can I just start with you then? I mean, I just say you're in a hostel, a YMCA hostel. So just you want to tell me about just a bit about yourself, about your background, how you ended up in a yeah. hostel, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, well, actually, I came into this hostel at a very awkward time. It was actually ju just before lockdown. Um, I received a room. Um, this one's in Hertfordshire at the moment, so it's it's a very expensive area, as we all know. Down south is quite expensive. Um, so since about like March 2020, um, it's kind of been up and down. Uh, we're we're not allowed people in the building still, uh, just to point that out. Um, I've been claiming Universal Credit for a few months now. It's been really up and down um and to be honest with you uh the way that it's going it's but the, the way that they're going especially with the job center it, i feel like really harassed mm -hmm. more than usual even during a pandemic um we used to receive phone calls weekly instead of every two weeks which was a bit excessive um so i'll kind of come on here to kind of raise awareness on that if hopefully other people have had the same experience as me but um Getting weekly phone calls of have you got a job yet when there's a pandemic can really affect mental health issues and well-being in general. So just tell me in terms of as it is in terms of as you say you're in an expensive area so just tell me a bit about how in terms of balancing how hard it is to balance the budget as it is and what a £20 cut to universal credit will mean to you in practice. In practice um, for example uh, there's like a, a 40 pounds personal allowance where I'm living um, in this YMCA, which they're asking for 40 pounds extra of your personal allowance, which frankly, I find that very disgusting. Um, so if 40 pounds, which is like half of the half of the um, cut, which is coming out, is out of my account, that's kind of like, well, I'm set back once again which I already thought, you know, that £40 towards personal charges was already ridiculous, plus electric, plus food, plus, um, you know, necessities and things like that. Um, it's not enough to live on, in all honesty with you. And there's been times where I've had to go to the food bank, actually plenty of times. And, you know, it's, it's always, it's, it's a very horrible experience. It's the type of thing where you think, you know, oh, I mean, this type of, um, how can I call it? It's, it's, it's more of like a, you feel embarrassed to be here, even though it's not embarrassing. So that's, that's how it kind of is at the moment. And personally, I think the way that it mainly affects people, including myself, is how are we meant to budget with such yeah. a small amount as it is? I mean, on that, Nelly, you mentioned mental health, for example. I mean... The pandemic, lots of people have found the pandemic hard, but it's been a lot harder for some, including yourself. And to be blunt, Tory ministers who are cutting universal credit do not lie awake at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering how they're going to pay an unopened energy bill on the kitchen table. 
Yeah, so do you course. just tell me about the impact on all of this has on your, you know, the, the experience as it is living, having to constantly budget all the time uh, to work out your outgoings with what limited money you have and the stress of, of having that reduced further. It's kind of like, I think it holds you on a social aspect as well, because I think I'll put this, for example, I don't know, you want to go and have a nice time with your mate somewhere and you can't because it's either that or there's no food in your fridge or you know it's either that or your electric goes off and i think i think that's the kind of like thing that puts people in a further kind of isolation as well um socially and financially and i, I don't think you know pe people that are quite well off will ever understand to be honest unless they're put in that position of i've lost everything here's square one um and to be fair um it's always been it's always been a war on the working class so well it's just they're just i, I think it's just like they're confirming mm -hmm. what we what we're already saying for years now but mm -hmm. at a higher level amen um i'll come back to you nella that's that's really brilliant though um i'm just going to ask bringing you andy um now we had someone earlier simeon wakely he said that he has a disability which means it's almost impossible to find work due to accessibility issues i'm on universal credit and i've just turned 25 how when the payment goes back i'll be 20 pounds worse off do you just tell me in terms of how how difficult things have already been you've been at the forefront uh, of fighting on this for disabled people over the last few years with cuts to various social security entitlements and what this latest cut on top of that will mean Oh, blimey. Sorry. Go for it, Andy. Attacking myself there. No problem. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, yeah, I think to set the context, really, I think we have to kind of uh, firmly use the framework of the UN um, coming in and finding this government, uh, which at the time, sorry, this party, which at the time in government had welfare reform as its flagship to be re-elected. But the United Nations found the Tory party um committing grave and systemic violations of disabled people's human rights, um, upon which was the bedrock of welfare reform was built. Um, that policy collection was designed to be punitive. It wasn't a byproduct of or fallout from decisions. It was um, shaped that way from the very beginning. Um, and while I kind of, you know, accept some of what Jonathan said, um, I would kind of... Uh, I would refer that, you know, that um, universal credit, it's black heart exists within the dynamic benefits um, policy paper from Ian, Junk, Ian Duncan Smith's um, uh, Center for uh, Social Justice, so, yeah. I think it's called, yeah. Um, so, you know, the idea of Ian Duncan Smith cutting, coming out and speaking with fork tongue around the, the very policy which he designed from his, the end of his own pen to then criticize it for... Um, uh, publicity points later on, um, you know, is really galling to be quite honest. And specifically around universal credit, when the government talks about catastrophic um, impact, well, I again refer you back to the very first pilot carried out in the north of England um, around universal credit, where seven out of ten people got into um, rent arrears, unmanageable rent arrears, and food poverty almost instantly. So this isn't a new. Um, uh, information to the government. This is, again, as I said, purely by design. This information has been publicly available all the way through. Um, the narrative has been completely at odds with 
what the actual facts and empirical truth has been. But that kind of context then, you know, if you're a disabled person now, where do you find yourself? Well, you find yourself in the UK where you're three times more likely not just to live in poverty, but in severe deprivation, according to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, where actually 1% of housing is inclusive, or sorry, accessible, where you don't have one of two countries in the world where you don't have an, a right to accessible to inclusive education. Um, and where your human rights were dismantled, um, including in things like social care um, over COVID. And as we, you know, the difference between kind of disabled people and the people who administer our resources is that they want disabled people to be written out of the story. Whereas we want, they have a vision of a future without disabled people having a stake. Whereas we believe that we have a stake right at the center along with the workers and service users in our community and our friends and neighbors and work colleagues, that we should be the one to chart the vision and build a world which is in our image and meets our needs. Um, and, you know, uh, that's why kind of, it's important that disabled people are challenging everything that's going on. And it's kind of why at the end of the month, what you have is you have um, a judicial review into the decision not to apply the um, 20 pound uplift that was given uh, to those on universal credits, to those on legacy benefits like ESA. Um, and those on those legacy benefits at the minute are living on a third of what the Joseph Rantry uh, foundation says is a minimum income floor um, and that's a really dis, you know a terrible state of affairs as we go with pretty much a blank page into a in into the future where actually what we have shown is that all the things that we thought were undoable can be done that we can actually be bold and be brave about what we aspire to um, and disabled people have long kind of come up with our own creative visions and we have our solution to um uh, social care in the form of the National Independent Living Support Service, which last year we got uh, voted through into the um, Labour Manifesto, but you would never think it if you listen to any of the tripe that's been coming out since, but particularly this week. But we also have a first principles vision of what a welfare system looks like based around claimant groups and in support with the University of Warwick. So that's part of of. of of pushing back against this is both in the courts, um, both with vision building, but also the most importantly on the streets and Deepak is going back onto the streets again on the 28th of September um, in support of those taking that judicial review. Um, and we have an action we're, causing, we're calling audio riot because there was a, a very significant line given at the, uh, at the uh, department or, or the Work and Pension Select Committee last month by a universal claimant and I can't remember her name now, but she said it's almost like it's been whispered um, that actually there is no noise and no pushback around this yeah. almost mm -hmm. at all. Nobody knows what's happening. And this could be the most devastating of devastating cuts over the period mm -hmm. of a decade. And almost we're all being led into it blindfolded. So we're creating an action in central London, 12 o'clock King's Cross on the 28th of September where we're asking people to bring as much noise as they can, anything that makes noise and takes part and take part with us to create a space where we can actually get this message out that this is not not just happening to disabled people, but as you say, millions of universal claimants right across the United Kingdom. And I'll, I'll make sure I plug that again properly just when when I finish. And just before I again bring in Nella, Andy, I mean, in terms of the material impacts that people can understand, what are the kind of choices every day disabled benefit claimants are having to make 
and what will be on a kind of in a daily on a kind of daily life kind of level what kind of impact will that 20 pound reduction have Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So... Some of the stories we've seen is because, of course, this cut isn't taking place in a vacuum, there's lots of services that have been dismantled over a period of time. So what we've seen is particularly one that strikes my memory is, is someone having to pay £100 out of their universal credit to get hospital transport to get their treatment um, for cancer because both hospital transport, has, of course, has been uh, removed right at the sharpest edge. And what you have is someone there literally choosing life or death that they're actually having to choose to go and get their cancer treatment or miss it and eat, and eat you know, and, and that's the kind of choices that we're hearing on a daily basis, really. Nella, if there was a government minister here, what would you say to them? I would say to reevaluate the whole, the whole system when it comes to this type of thing. Um, I think I would start by saying especially as Andy um, pointed out very well, is that we really need someone to look into how badly it affects the disabled people in this country. I've seen on many occasions, uh, because I actually run a Facebook group, the Socialist Board, and um, we've just we've just started a little group to kind of like, it's a little just a little bulletin board, anything is a proper issue, someone can just pop in and say, hey, look, we need donations here, whatever here, um, that type of thing. So I started that on that note because there was this woman that um, similar situation had to pay out for a universal credit to just get to hospital appointments, to get to job center appointments as well, which the job center, they don't pay you back for, for all these travel costs and things like that. For example, in my own case, um, I live in a small town, I have to travel a bus and so forth to get to get to the job center. And it's, you know, that's about nearly 10 quid a pop every time. And it really does make a difference between, you know, 10 pounds for the bus, which you don't get back from from the job center to um, to a week's, well, maybe not a week's worth of shopping, but like maybe a few days worth of food from Aldi. So it really does make a difference. Um, and if they do get rid of this, um, twenty pound a week, mm. then that's going to leave a lot of people once again going to the food banks, going to places where it's you know their last option, or even having to do the extremes, which it, which is 
crime or whatever whatever we can put down to just to have a few extra pounds in the pocket. Anello, for those watching or listening to this on the podcast who aren't going to be affected by the £20 uh, cut but are angry about it, what would you say to them? Um, I'm really... You know, I'm really grateful that people are still sympathetic if they're not in the same situation. That just shows, you know, even if you're not in the same situation, you have empathy. And I thank you for that because there's a lot of times where people are put on benefits and they're judged for it. And that, you know, apparently we're called scroungers and lazy and we don't want to work. We do want to work. We do want to work. But when there's, when there's things like this, it can discourage your motivation. It can discourage your mental health. It can discourage your well-being. Because mm. if you're not living on enough as it is, you can't look after yourself properly. Mm. You can't feed yourself the right foods. Sometimes you'll go a few days without foods mm -hmm. because bills have come out, something has cut, a debt has come out, um, and that puts your general well-being down. So I can see the whole stereotype of we're lazy and things like that. No, we're just depressed and anxious and mentally unwell because of a system that doesn't work for the greater good. Andy, just just kind of, I suppose, just coming to, to the end of this, because I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time and how busy you are, but do you think that maybe being a positive, looking for a positive, is there has actually been quite a sea change in attitudes, partly, I have to say, because of campaigning by the likes of disabled people against the cuts, because at the beginning of the 2010s, polling was really terrible when it came to issues of the welfare state and benefit claimants, the kind of way people who were struggling were, were demonised as lazy and scroungers and all that kind of thing had really cut through with a large section of the population. There's no question. And anyone who knocked on doors in that period can remember that. But there has actually been a shift in public attitudes. And I wonder what you think that's down to and how it could be built on, because this universal credit cut is not popular and actually those cuts were alarmingly popular in the early 2010s so what do you how, how do you think that's changed and what what how can it be built on so i think there's a couple of things i think firstly it's down to the fact that there are now generations of disabled people who've demanded more from the world around them who have looked to the revolutionary movements um, of the past, um, both in the UK and overseas, and taken inspiration from that and learned from that and learned that the world has to be reshaped to reflect um, our lives as well as everybody else's. And they've come up and they want to be uh, involved in sports and science and teaching and architects and builders and all, all the trades. And they want to be, you know, volunteers and they want to, you know, take part in their local communities and, and you know, rightfully so, and those people have, have demanded more from the world around them. Um, and I think, you know, there have been um, huge sacrifices made by those movements, people who have gone out and put themselves at, you know, at, at, at huge risk, um, you know, to, to forge a path. And I think we owe, you know, today in 2021, a huge debt, and I would go so far as to say everything we have to those movements who have gone before. And I think we only stand here because of their good work. I think how we go forward is by recognizing that actually now there is, and I think what what is coming across is that society is ready, more ready to accept the fact that they have disabled peers and neighbors and family members and partners and teachers, and that actually 
we recognize that if the world is to function at all, then it has to be around everybody. Um, and that people are more willing. I don't think we're, um, I use this phrase a lot, but I don't think we're turning, we're talking to people's backs so much anymore. I think people have turned their heads now. And I think it's up to us to kind of, um, yeah, build a vision of the world where, you know, we take an equal part um, and that is kind of uh, designed for us to, you know, to thrive um, as individuals, as a community, um, and to help um, everybody else learn from what we have given and what we have contributed to society so far and what we're willing to learn from people going forward. Andy and Nella, really, really appreciate both of your time. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant. You've really both shone a light on what this actually means to people's lives in practice because often, as we know, the media portrayal cuts out the voices of those actually affected and statistics don't cut through to people in the way that people's lived experiences do. So you both so brilliantly and articulately explained that. And um, Disabled People Against the Cuts, I just want to do a, another plug because they've been absolutely incredible and inspiring and uh, courageous over the last few years. If the test of a society is how disabled people are treated in terms of how civilised a society is, in my word, how this society fails abysmally, um, and just to plug, again, the protest that Andy mentioned. So that's on the 28th of September at 11.30 a.m. And it's at King's Cross Station, uh, which is obviously central London, in the courtyard in front of the station. So if you if you look up, if you type DPAC, which is D-P-A-C, and you, and you Google audio riots, one word, uh, you'll find the the website with the Facebook event link, and you can click on that. And people, it says here, it's, it's going to be lots of fun. Uh, uh, the Deepak will be providing materials, but they're encouraging people to bring drums, whistles, cymbals, bells, klaxons, and loudspeakers. I think it's important to make this point because uh, the uh, policing bill, which has been driven through Parliament by this government, essentially attempts to criminalise peaceful protests and talks about you know basically banning protests which cause a, no a noisy and a nuisance that that's the point of protest they're supposed to be noisy and a nuisance of course. so that's why people fought at huge costs for the right to protest because it's supposed to be inconvenient to force people to be heard and deepak have always forced uh, people to listen to the voices of disabled people whether they like it or not so yeah of course hugely important um so both Nella and Andy, you've been you've been really brilliant. Really appreciate your time. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Owen, for having me. It goes without saying. Thank you, and uh, thank you so much. And I'll speak to you soon. Lots of love. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. They were both brilliant. We're very lucky to have such brilliant guests. Um, oh, labor, 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 labor. Just gonna just meditate for a second. I just don't even know what to say anymore. Honestly, don't know what to say. Uh, so I am not going to say very much now. I'm just, I, oh my word. You just, if you've not heard about this, you just not, I mean, I just, I still haven't processed it. Let's just bring in Jess Barnard, who is the chair of Young Labour, a brilliant activist, the sort of activist the Labour Party in a rational world should be celebrating and putting at the absolute forefront of its campaigning. Uh, hey Jess, how you doing? Hello. Um, not too bad. All Quite things weak. considered, not too bad. Quite weak. Let's have a look it's at the post. Let's see the cat first. For those who are listening on the podcast, Bella. it's a very beautiful post. What's the post called? This is Bellatrix um, hey, or Bella. Bella. How very She's, sweet. Um, it's a black and white uh, post. She looks extremely happy. Look, look at the camera. Yeah, there we go. Here we go. Very sweet. Sorry. Yeah. We can just talk about cats. It has to be part of every call I do, so... 
Well, I think we should, maybe we should just talk about cats instead. Yeah, that would be, you know what? That would be much more pleasant, really, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I'll just explain what happened. So I got, uh, an NEC member got in touch with me on Friday because you had emailed NEC members about a notice of investigation, which is a disciplinary letter, essentially threatening disciplinary action against Labour members for violating the Labour Party rules. Uh, on the basis of two tweets. Let's have a look at, look, look at these tweets, shall we? Let's bring up one of them. Competition time. Guess how many turf accounts? That's trans-exclusionary radical feminist accounts. I had to block today. Closest guest gets to pick a charity supporting trans people for me to donate some of my council allowance to. Voting closes in 24 hours. Let's have a look at the other tweet. Expect better from a Labour representative. These accounts stalk, harass, incite hatred and abuse towards trans people. Why on earth the Labour Council would defend them is completely beyond me. There's no fishing for anything. I just won't be intimidated into giving transphobes energy. Now, I know some people might be watching this or listening to this and think, well, there must be more to it than that. There must be something else. Come on. It's not those tweets. What's what's possibly wrong with those tweets? That's just the, that's just a, the chair of Young Labour calling out bigotry against one of the most marginalized minorities in the country. But that was the basis of the notice investigation. So, and they just quickly explain, you got this at 1 a.m. in the morning. I looked through it myself, spelling mistakes. And also it said it was about posts on Facebook. They're not post Facebook, they're Twitter. Now, I mean, obviously it's no biggie. It's just Labour's disciplinary system, which has been the focus of political debate in this country for years, actually, as it turns out. Keir Starmer's allies have been, oh, they've only been, they've only been running the party for a year and a half. Total control of the Labour Party. What did you think when you got that letter? I, just, I still really don't know how to describe it, really. I think there's a part of me that isn't surprised. Okay, um, you know, I think I've been quite open about the difficult relationship that Young Labour and myself have had with with the with the party, you know, and then I think, you know, particularly kind of party staff and, and bureaucrats. Um, so I think there was part of me that was expecting this. Obviously, I've seen quite a lot of left wing activists targeted, um, you know, and, and also solidarity to those that are also getting similar kind of just outrageous uh, complaints and, and investigation notices through. Uh, they're just a completely ridiculous um, that might not have the same platform that I do. Um, but yeah, I, I just I'm just so, so upset that we're at this point where we're prepared to basically um, you know align the party with transphobes and transphobia and use it as like a factional weapon to attack people on the left or people that stand with 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 trans people um against these attacks um and that's a really sad sad thing to think about our party you know that's not why we joined the labor party that's not why young people and lgbt have stood by the labor party and repeatedly voted for the labor party over the years um so it's just really really like heartbreaking really I'll come on to that wider issue of the relationship between Young Labour and the party hierarchy because there have been various briefings to journalists about essentially what a showdown between the Labour leadership and the Young Labour uh, wing of the Labour Party, which you obviously are democratically elected chair of with a democratically elected committee. So, I mean, I'm trying to work out still. There's a few theories which have been running around. The writer Alex Nunn's who people may know his his work, he used to work for Jamie Corbyn um, himself um, from 2018 onwards. What, I mean, do you have any theories about what was happening? Because I have to say, just even strategically, it's so bizarre. It's just such a bizarre, unhinged thing to do, which, 
you know, obviously they were forced to U-turn because of the outrage. But what's your, th- do you have a working theory? Um, I have, I have some ideas, I guess. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot that, that isn't kind of in the public eye. There's a lot that's been kind of going on behind the scenes. Um, and I think it just feels like far too much of a coincidence that, um, you know, this, as for my understanding, this, this is based on a complaint that was perhaps made a very, very long time ago. And, and, you know, according to Alex Nunn's from sources in the party was dismissed by the GLU. Um, so which if everyone knows is the government's illegal unit, which runs sorry, the disciplinary. That's right, Gary. I know yeah. it's just the Labour um, wants. <laughs> I know. Um, and yeah, it's just, I, that, that must've been dragged up by somebody after being dismissed by GLU. Um, so that kind of makes me feel like, you know, this this kind of isn't an accident. Um, you know, I have written to David Evans um, expressing my... He's the General Secretary. He's the yeah, General Secretary of the Labour Party. I'm expressing my concerns because I think um, it's actually just not good enough. And what kind of message do we want to send to, to, to young people who, who stand up for, for trans rights or are trans? Um, is this, you know, are we going to just say, well, if we don't factionally like you, we're gonna, we'll hound you? Um, out of the party that's it's just not yeah it's just really shocking i'm not really sure i don't i don't really know what my theory is at this point but i'm 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 feeling quite like there is a coordinated effort um to kind of push socialists like myself out of the party which i'll, I'll come on to just after this this other question which is i mean look, a lot of people have raised the point that labor party has a transphobia problem um there are a lot of people within the party from activists higher up who've used their platform to support and endorse anti-trans talking points support anti-trans rhetoric and trans people are one of the most marginalized communities in the country transphobic hate crime has quadrupled over the space of five years Uh, the statistics on trans people is in this country the experience is alarming about half are scared to use a public toilet Um, and about one in four young trans people have been homeless huge rates of suicidal ideation, uh, huge numbers report being discriminated against at work, uh, in education, uh, being abused in the streets. The vast majority don't report those experiences to the authorities, so the official statistics only scratch the the top of the iceberg. And I suppose you kind of think with Labour, we have our disagreements, to say the least, on various issues. You kind of think, though, that there'd be a consensus on LGBTQ rights. I don't ask for much in life. Just not being the enemies of LGBTQ people. That's all. That'd be great. Because actually, whatever criticisms I have of New Labour in government, they actually did do good stuff on LGBTQ rights. And a lot of people on the right of the party would champion that as well. So I suppose the point now is, look, you've got allegations, for example, about Rosie Duffield, who's a Labour MP uh, for Canterbury, who likes just awful, awful tweets by anti-trans activists. Um, and we've, you know, just reams of them caught, you know, caught, liking tweets saying that trans people are cosplaying as the opposite sex, that kind of thing. Um, and sharing articles denouncing the transgender thought police. I mean, imagine that the homosexual thought police. I mean, so what, what do you, I mean, Jack, what do you think about the fact, you know, LGBT labor, which it should be said, it, it's, it's, it's leadership is not on the left. They don't have our politics. They're, they're loyal to the labor leadership's politics but they've demanded Rosie Duffield's whip is withdrawn. But there's various other senior Labour politicians who are guilty of a similar behaviour, but no action's been taken. But you, the most prominent young activist in the Labour Party, you had a notice of investigation for opposing transphobia. What does that tell us about the state of all of this? 
exactly i think i think it tells us that the complaint system still is completely not fit for purpose um and that, that we currently have a leadership that is you know i think determined to run away from this issue um and to not hold transphobe like transphobes accountable um i think you know the whole the framing of this as as a uh, like you know some kind of marginal issue that the working class people don't care about it's just the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard in my life you know trans people are working class people too um you know and lgbt rights have always been really important to to, to labor's voters um so it's, it's very 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 tactically silly in in my view um but also it's just it's just creating a situation where where particularly trans people but also you know the wider lgbt community um, particularly given like the, the arguments that are being used the kind of things that are being supported by like rosie duffield and things are similar arguments to the things we used to see you know, like in the 80s used to used against um, particularly gay men you know these, these are being recycled and these are these are you know phrases used by the far right to to attack lgbt people so there's no wonder that 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 young trans people are turning away in their droves from the labor party like it broke my heart um when when you know the investigation against me was leaked because my timeline was full of, of trans people leaving the labor party um and and you know the party if they want to prove that that they stand on the side of trans people if they want to prove that they could be trusted in government to support lgbt people and not go back on the rights that you know that we fought for and, and that trans people deserve um then you know they need to prove it like show us actually speak louder than words take action on transphobia introduce a definition um work with groups that are fighting transphobia to create a system that actually works and stop using factionalism um in in such you know in such a hurtful way in such a derogatory way and such a harmful way um you know it's just just astounding one of those uh young trans members who left is someone called arthur webber who's one of my favorite people on twitter young trans guy look him up on twitter he's at bernie tranders it's very funny bernie is in bernie sanders but tranders tr instead of sanders and he wrote this letter uh, resigning as a young closeted trans man at university i found a safe haven in my labor students club a group of people who not only respect my identity but encouraged me to stand and make a change when i eventually plucked up the courage to go to my first constituency labor party meeting i was met with love and acceptance my constituency labor party eventually encouraged me to stand to be a labor councillor and i ran whilst openly trans i was fully prepared to receive backlash from the public for this but did did not receive any and then said did receive online abuse from members of of the labor party the party that loves to remind me it wrote and passed the Equality Act 2010, but allows members to advocate for this law to be broken to exclude and marginalise transgender people. The part of the NHS that says nothing as trans people die on waiting lists for treatment that seemingly never end. The Labour Party said it was for people like me until it wasn't. Uh, when a particularly prominent party figure engaged in casual transphobic behaviour for the first time, I wrote an article called the intent of helping the individual and the wider membership understand why such behaviour is hurtful to people like me. I've now come to the conclusion that the party knows full well this causes significant distress, but does not value us enough to protect us from harm. I've spent the last year debating with myself whether my mem very membership of the party is an endorsement of its poor treatment of its trans members. The pessimist in me has declared victory, and I cannot stand by and indirectly indirectly encourage this behavior i hope to return soon arthur weber heartbreaking heartbreaking and the labor party's welcomed in trevor phillips with his pattern of islamophobia whilst young trans and lgbtq people are driven from their party disgusting um just just a couple of other things so the broader context i think is important about young labor because young labor have stuck to arguing labor should have a radical domestic agenda you could almost say the 10 pledges part for example which Keir starmer won the labor leadership committing to so just want to fight that up as well as taking an un uncompromisingly 
uh, progressive stance on issues of international justice, for example, the emancipation of the Palestinian people from an illegal and brutal occupation. How much do you think all of this is to do with this, basically? Oh, this is hugely connected, in in my view. Um, you know, since we as a committee were elected, and we, you know, we've obviously just increased our our kind of like majority, I guess, of socialists on the committee. Um, so, you know, we're, we're very much on the left. We're all like socialists um, and we believe in, you know, significant change in society to improve young people's lives. And that's what we're representing. And that's what we're campaigning for. Um, and we were elected on that basis um, in, you know, with an overwhelming mandate. But since we've been elected, the party HQ, I think it's fair to say, has um, worked to undermine us, has uh, at every turn possible tried to um, halt or put up barriers or basically just stop altogether our ability to organise and support young members. For wider context, for people that might not be kind of familiar with Young Labour and how it works, we have no access to our own funds, we have no access to our own members' data, so we can't even send out emails without the party's approval. Um, and obviously, if we want to organise events, um, the party can, can just arbitrarily say no, because they hold all of the strings uh, for us to be able to do that. So obviously, when you have a democratically socialist, so democratically elected socialist committee that wants to do socialist events, that wants to do events where we talk about all the issues young people care about, um, you get party bureaucrats using those flaws in that system to prevent that from happening. And that's exactly what's been going on. Um, you know, I tweeted a few weeks ago before this all kicked off about the situation we were in after about four months of waiting for Dave Evans to communicate with young members that he had decided we would not be allowed to host our own conference this year, despite it being a party rulebook requirement. Um, he promised to me that he would communicate that to young members. I waited four months. It still didn't happen. We'd received no communication from him. He'd also promised extra resources for us to de deliver something at uh, Labour Party conference nationally and that had just not been forthcoming we'd been ignored um, I had been chasing party staff multiple times a week it was causing us a huge amount of stress and putting a huge amount of pressure on us when the party was selling tickets to our members and we're expected to deliver something and the party were refusing to do anything to support us to talk to us or to approve our speakers so they wouldn't even be allowed in to the conference venue so yeah that's where we are, basically. Um, and so I think it's quite clear that there is, you know, a, a link between the hostility we've, we've seen kind of come out um, towards me over the weekends. Um, and yeah, and, and the practice that we've seen from the party. Just finally, um, what do you think is going to happen at conference? Do you think they will try and do some rah, 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 take on Young Labour kind of thing? And the, the other thing, I suppose, connected to it. I mean, do you think they basically decided well, young people are going to vote for us, whatever happens, aren't they? They vote. Because obviously in 2017 and 2019, uh, I mean, even the 2019 route, actually young support went up for the Labour Party then, not enough to win, clearly, in 2017. And 2019 was a terrible defeat. And that's because overwhelmingly, unfortunately, older people aren't voting for the Labour Party, um, something which has got worse with every election since since 1997, essentially. Um, what uh, do you think... You know, so what's going to happen at conference? And do you think a lot of this is just the sense of young people have nowhere else to go so we can stick our fingers up at them because what are they going to do about it? They're just going to come and vote for us anyway. Oh, definitely. And I think a lot of it is a recognition that, um, you know, so many young people joined that. Sorry, my cat's laying on my keyboard. I'm a bit afraid to close this window. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, 
I think there's like a des desperate attempt to kind of undermine young members because so many joined um, the party under Jeremy Corbyn. I think we had around 100,000 members there and we know that that's fallen quite significantly. We don't know exactly what our membership numbers are at the moment. The party haven't told us. Um, but, you know, I think that this showdown that the party apparently won at conference, we don't really want, you know what I mean? We we, we just want to get on with what we were elected to do. Um, and, and nothing that we are asking to do is even that shocking or radical. It's just about creating a space where young people and young members are free to have debates, discussions, mm -hmm. to get off Twitter and actually get in real life and start talking with each other and figuring out their political views, figuring out solutions to the problems that they're facing, getting together and learning how to organise in their workplaces against injustices in society you know standing together when they face oppression particularly like the transphobia we see in society and the things that we proposed for for young labor day at conference are exactly that they, they capture exactly that mm -hmm. empowering young members housing for the many black lives and racial capitalism solidarity not charity organizing in your workplaces the fight for trans liberation these are all things we were asking to deliver at conference um we'll vet we'll see if we are permitted to do that um i'm not sure yet um but of course you know i think what i will say to young members or young people listening on the call um you know we are determined to deliver this um and this isn't just about me if the party wants to come after me for this fine but there is a huge number of young people who believe in this who are calling for this and who are calling for you to listen to us and allow us to organize jess it's been an absolute pleasure thanks so much uh, it's disgraceful the way you were treated uh but as i as i keep saying <laughs> said in a video about this uh, as the song goes they took on jess barnard and jess barnard won so bad luck labor bureaucracy oh you're gonna come for the come for the queen better not miss uh but lots of love i look forward to seeing you Thank at labor you. conference i'm yes. sure we can we can talk and we'll have to meet in person be i nice. know it's so weird we've never <laughs> met it's really bizarre uh but yeah i'll um i'll try and be sober for labor conference um this I is gonna be yeah, it's too stressful. Yeah, we'll get drunk. Don't worry about it. Um, all right, lots of love, Jess. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, and everyone. to the cat as well. Um, brilliant stuff. Uh, depressing, but bleak. Uh, all of what we've covered, to be honest with you, but that is, I'm afraid, the reality of the world we currently live in. We're taking the scenic route to a better world. Let's just put it generously, shall we? Uh, but it's been brilliant to have uh, those guests. We've got, uh, speaking actually of uh, transphobia, we're very, very lucky this week to have an interview with Sean Fay, whose new incredible masterpiece, The Transgender Issue, is now out. Do buy it. If you don't understand issues to do with trans people, uh, if you don't know any trans people, uh, if you're confused about what's being talked about all the time on social media and all the rest of it, this is the book for you. It really does go into great, humane and powerful detail about what it's like to be trans uh, in modern the modern world, uh, what they're up against and just, you know, the actual realities rather than the lies and myths that are propagated. So do please get a copy, but we'll have an interview with her. We will finally have our documentary about who owns Britain as well as... Uh, videos, as I said, it Labour Conference and Tory Conference. You make all this possible on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84 because I'm hopelessly out of my depth, so I have to rely on brilliant team to do all of that who you pay. So thank you. Uh, I'll see you next week on Sunday at uh, then at 12 o'clock as ever. And we will have, oh, also to Harley the Salami, uh, who says, How do we begin to restore power to party members? If the party won't respect its own rules, perhaps we need to protest and progress within. Got to organize and fight back and the likes of young labor are doing that that's why they're being victimized 
and harassed. They don't call it a struggle for nothing. It's not a walkover, it's a struggle. But um, history will damn those who are behaving in this way. I have absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, so we'll, as I said, we'll have all these documentaries uh, up. Uh, do like the video, it helps more people watch it. Um, if you're watching on Facebook, come through to that. If you're listening on the podcast, um, thank you. And keep listening to the podcast, I suppose. Uh, we've got loads coming up. As I said, lots of love, everyone. And I'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice spread the word and I look forward to speaking to you soon tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on Amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free that's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.